This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'm Steve Coburn, publisher of Wharton Digital Press, and I'm here today with Simon Winchester, who's editor of a fascinating and wide-ranging new book, Pacific, which covers a great deal of ground to read from the subtitle, Silicon Chips and Surfboards, Coral Reefs and Atom Bombs, Brutal Dictators, Fading Empires, and the Coming Collision of the World Superpowers. Simon, good afternoon. Hello. Uh, You begin your book, or at the beginning of the book, talk about the fact that the Pacific Ocean is coming to symbolize the future that the Mediterranean was once the inland sea of the ancient world, the Atlantic, to some people, uh, was the inland sea of the modern world, and that you can argue that the Pacific Ocean will be the inland sea of tomorrow's world. What does that mean? Well, it's the place where, at least in my view, the two great civilizations finally meet and confront each other. I mean, we have humankind originating in Ethiopia with one group going off east to Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley and Peking and the other group going through the Balkans and up into Europe, many Europeans crossing the Atlantic into the Americas and under the impress of the Manifest Destiny, making their way west to the shores of the Pacific. And then after Balboa first saw it in 1520, crossing it and then confronting the other great civilization. So you've got the eastern civilization on the west side of the Pacific and the western civilizations on the east side of the Pacific, a sort of bit of geographical topsy-turvydom. And how do these two peoples deal with each other? And the way that has happened is that in the past, they have generally speaking colonized or brutalized or enslaved or in some way spoiled the lives of the Easterners. But then in the beginning, I suppose, in the 1970s, the Americans withdrew from Southeast Asia. The British withdrew from their vast colonial um, imperium in, in, in the Pacific Ocean. The Germans, the Japanese have left. And the Pacific peoples are now, as it were, standing on their own two feet for the first time since we Europeans began interfering with their lives. And now it seems to me that these two great civilizations are have the potential to cooperate at long last with one another. And I think as a consequence of that, we're seeing a real sort of hinge point of history, that we're going to see the, a shift in the sort of dominance of, let's say, Rome. And it's going to move now to the dominance of, let us say, Peking or Beijing, very roughly. And that change of order is going to happen in and around the Pacific, which is why I think the Pacific is important in all of humankind's futures. Interestingly, one underlying motive of your book is the what you notice the end of the Vasco da Gama era, the sudden and very wholesale redistribution of world power, uh, and that after, as you just noted, after half a millennium of the West dominating Pacific, it now seems to be the turn of the Asians. Uh, and you argue that it would be a good thing. Uh, that the Asia for the Asians offers a possibility of greater stability for the region. Uh, why should the Asians uh, do a better job than the Westerners did? Because with the single exception of the Japanese in a spasm of unpleasantness from the 1930s to the middle of the 1940s, the Asians have been much more benign in their management of the world than we Westerners have. I mean, the Chinese, to give a classic example, I mean, the most populous country on earth, has not with the single exception of Tibet, really overreached itself. They have 
remained contentedly within their own borders. They've been the Middle Kingdom, Zhongguo. They have been content with who they are and not wishing to export themselves culturally or imperially in the way that we Westerners done. I mean, we Westerners have gone around the world dominating and enslaving and influencing millions, billions of people. And generally, although leaving, in the case of the British and the Americans, leaving the legacy of the English language, that's true, and certain types of legal frameworks and so forth, and one might argue railways and postal systems and so forth. But nonetheless, generally speaking, we have left a legacy which has embedded in it the seeds of all sorts of conflicts. I mean, you've only got to look in the Middle East and look at the borders that we drew, look at India-Pakistan, look at Northern Ireland, look at Israel. So um, Eastern countries have not done that kind of thing, generally speaking. Yes, there have been some excesses. So I think I would rather live in a world run by Asians than in a world run by us. Is it likely to be that smooth a transition? Are we likely to go from a world run by Asians, run by us, to a world run by Asians without conflict and disorder? Well, that's my hope. I, I think, no, there are going to be all sorts of rough patches which may take you know, many decades to resolve. And uh, the, the classical situation is the one evolving at the moment in, in the South China Sea, which is uh, you know, the Chinese have this fairly worked out stratagem of expanding their navy into the Pacific. They've already as it were, taken de facto, if not de jure, control of the South China Sea. And they have these imagined bastion chains of islands extending outwards all the way up to Hawaii. And they think, and in my view, quite reasonably, the Americans have dominated the Pacific Ocean navally for the last uh, 60 years. We're a Pacific nation. We have a big navy. We're rich and influential. Why can't we at least have maritime equivalents? Well, the Pentagon regards that as threatening. I don't regard it as threatening in the slightest because the Chinese are not likely to do what we have done, which is to colonize and enslave and dominate. They just want to, as I say, enjoy equivalence. But so long as that is feared by people, then there's the potential for conflict. There's also the potential for accidents, of course. Um, and so the potential for conflict will lead undeniably to confrontations here and there. But in overall, general, long-term historical sense, nothing that can't be dealt with, and then it'll all settle down into this new world order, I think. One hopes. Uh, China does seem to be extending its territoriality sequentially in the Pacific, from the first chain to the second yes. chain to the third chain. Uh, how should the U.S. react to that? I think by trying to understand why she's doing this, why China is, is seeking this maritime equivalence, and not being fearful of its potential, because I don't think that it is dangerous. I, I, I think, I mean, a classic example is, is the, the Yangtze River. I mean, I was watching recently this wonderful film, I dare say you've seen it, called The Sand Pebbles with Candice Bergen and Steve McQueen on an American gunboat in the Yangtze, um, putting down all sorts of problems in the 1920s and 30s reminds us that American warships, Italian, German, French, and British warships were able to operate deep inside China on the Yangtze River for 50 years, and that if anyone committed a crime, if a ship 
sailor got involved in a fight in, in Wuhan or Chongqing, uh, that wouldn't be judged by the Chinese courts. Heaven, no, we were not going to have one of our people judged by a Chinese magistracy. We'll try them in our own courts. It was this principle of extraterritoriality, which we, you know, arrogantly assumed was right. But how would we feel if the Chinese Navy were operating in the Mississippi and uh, one of their sailors gets involved in a fight in Hannibal, Missouri, and says, we don't want to be judged by your Missouri courts, we'll be judged by our naval courts. So uh, because we have behaved in a certain way in the Pacific doesn't necessarily mean that the rest of the civilized world, and no one would argue that China is not part of the civilized world. I mean, after all, their civilization is 20 times as old as ours. Um, I think they'll behave in a perfectly civilized manner. They simply want equivalence and they want respect, and I think they should be given it. Well, you characterize Western dominance in terms of aircraft carriers, nuclear tests, coral bleaching, and pollution, and argue that the Chinese warships, and I'm being a little unfair, uh, will lead to reverence, accommodation, admiration, and awe. And the question is, why should the Chinese warships going out to the second and third chain of islands be more benign than the Western warships were in the same place? Because they, they're simply seeking equivalence. They're not suggesting that their warships are there for any malign purpose. It's simply a symbol of the extension of Chinese influence. Chinese cultural influence, you know, will, will, will follow the flag, if you like, in the same way that trade tended to follow the flag. I just don't think we need to fear them, but the Pentagon does. And of course, what does the, the military-industrial complex demand is, oh, the Chinese are ramping up their navy, so we need to get a second aircraft carrier into the Western Pacific, and we need to buy more submarines. And we all know that that's, uh, that leads, to, leads nowhere except to an ever-increasing tax burden on the American people. Let me shift gears a minute. You talk about climate change, and you note the increasing extreme weather events in the Western Pacific and North America. Uh, but then you argue that the, pl and the planet may heal itself, uh, that the world and its creatures will survive, and that the Pacific Ocean could serve as a gigantic safety valve that's essential to the future of the planet. How will the Pacific Ocean help to provide some self-regulating remedy to the man-made destruction of the Well, there are two planet? answers to that. One is that, undeniably, the Pacific, simply because of its vastness, is an enormous absorber of heat from the sun. I mean, it's, water holds heat much longer than rocks do. If you stand under a rock in the desert at night, the rock goes cold. But if you stand in a body of water, it will retain that heat for a very much longer time. The Pacific absorbs heat. And as it does so, it produces, because it's taking so much more heat at the moment, it produces more ferocious weather locally, bigger storms, all that sort of thing. But nonetheless, it is there to absorb the heat and to create, yes, by doing so, inconveniences for humankind. But nonetheless, for the planet as a whole, the fact that it is absorbing heat is a good thing because this helps the planet as a whole, disregarding humankind, survive. It, 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 it helps it weather these changes, these distortions in the atmosphere. But there's another aspect of this which I found completely fascinating and which I discovered when I was writing a book about the Atlantic Ocean, which is that there is this creature, which we didn't even know existed until 1989, which exists in all the oceans of the world, in the warm waters from about 40 north to about 30 south, called Prochlorococcus, which is a single-celled algal creature. 
which absorbs carbon dioxide and expels oxygen. And this is the most numerous creature on the planet. Trillions upon trillions of these things which emit oxygen such that one in five of the breaths that you and I are taking in this studio today has been generated by a creature that we didn't even know existed as recently as 1989. Well, the thing about prochlorococcus is it loves warm water. And so the warmer the waters get, the, warm, the, the higher the temperature of the oceans produced by the global warming that we all disapprove of, the more prochlorococcus pro there'll be, the greater the range, the more carbon dioxide they'll emit, that they, they, they'll absorb, and the more oxygen they'll emit. This is a classic example of the planet healing itself, the Gaia theory, James Lovelock's theory that the planet as a whole is a self-regulating mechanism. We humans are in irrelevance, really. We're just, we're soon going to be fossils. We'll be like ammonites and trilobites. We'll just be another slightly more annoying temporary inhabitant of the planet. The planet will be okay. We'll disappear, hoist on our own petard, uh. troubled by the troubles that we created. You close by talking about sailing canoes and navigation in the attempt to replicate some of the older Trans-Pacific ventures. Could you talk about that a little bit and its relevance to where we're going in the future? Hokulea is a traditional... Hawaiian sailing canoe, a huge thing, about 60 feet long, twin hulls, two sails, built in 1976 by a group of Hawaiians as Hawaii's gift to America for the bicentenary. They weren't just gifting the physical, ob physical object of the canoe, they were gifting the skill of navigating without instruments, because that's what the Polynesians did for thousands of years before we came along. They you know, there's this big triangle with Hawaii in the north and Easter Island in the east and New Zealand or Aotearoa in the west. And the Polynesians would happily sail from Easter Island to New Zealand without using any instruments, without any compass, without any sextant, just by studying the movement of clouds, the stars, the feel of the waves, the tracks of seabirds and things. And if they wanted to go... 5,000 miles from, from Easter Island, they could in the old days until we came along and said, sorry, uh, Easter Island is a Chilean and uh, uh, the next islands are French and then those are British and these are American islands. To sail through them, you'll need a passport. And they said, what, what's a passport? And they said, well, you need application forms. And they said, well, we can't read or write. We've never seen a need to. And the navigation effectively died. People stopped doing this. There were one or two people that knew how to do it, one in particular, and they hauled him up to Hawaii in 1976, taught a group of local Hawaiians how to sail this canoe without any instruments, and he said, we can get to Tahiti in six weeks, and they got to Tahiti in exactly six weeks. And this encouraged the Hawaiians, and they set to learning these skills, and they took their little boat up to Japan, reminding the Japanese that they were very much a Pacific peoples. They took it to Vancouver, they took it to uh, Chile, and now they've become incredibly good at it. And now they're sailing it around the world. And this little craft is, at the time we're talking, she's just arrived in South Africa in Mossel Bay. And she'll be going round Cape of Good Hope up into the Atlantic Ocean. And the aim is that by sometime this coming summer, she will sail up the Potomac and show herself and introduce the crew of this remarkable venture to their Hawaiian president, 
to remind him what Polynesian people should do. And then they'll scoot down the east coast of South America through the Magellan Straits and up to towards Hawaii and home. It'll take four years to hold, do the whole journey. And my feeling is that if they get adequate publicity and we come to realize this extraordinary nature of this achievement, then we will give to them and the ocean on which they're sailing something which has been sorely lacking from us Westerners, and that is our respect. And that's what I'm hoping for, and I think that's what they're hoping for. So hokulea.com is the website that you can go to to follow the progress of this remarkable little craft. Simon Winchester, thank you very much. And again, the book is called Pacific. Thank you very much indeed. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.